Lord God, we have one life to live. Only so many years, only so many breaths, only so many opportunities to see what you have done and to live in response to it. One life to live, Lord, and then is eternity. Lord, as has been prayed this week, I pray now, would you help your people here at Riverside to see the significance of the one life they have, and Lord, the opportunity they have, as hard as it might be, to follow Christ in faith. I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would not let anyone here leave without knowing Jesus as both Savior and Lord, and that, Lord, all of us would leave here committed to him, desiring to honor him, Father, and willing to go and do whatever you might call us to do, come what may. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not one of his disciples was thinking about a cross. That severe object of Roman execution upon which the most heinous criminals of all were forced to take up and carry a heavy horizontal beam of wood to the outskirts of a town in order to have that beam nailed along with their hands and feet to a taller erected piece of wood causing that criminal to slowly suffocate to death after hours upon excruciating hours of pain. This never crossed the minds of the disciples as they traveled around the Galilean countryside with Jesus. They had no doubt heard of the prophecy of Isaiah 53, of God's servant who would come and would suffer, but they had never quite made the connection to their Jesus, whom Peter had just gloriously named back in verse 16, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But in this turning point of a passage, Jesus relates that the path ahead would be one most unexpected. That it would not go as they had dreamed for Jesus, and that it would not go as they had even imagined for themselves. Because a cross was not only in Christ's future, but it was also in theirs. Will you take up your cross and follow King Jesus? That is our question before us today. Will you follow the path of the king even though that path is marked by self-denial and sacrifice and suffering? This is our consideration this morning. And I have two exhortations for you that come from our passage. Number one, do not imagine a crossless Christ. And number two, do not imagine a crossless life. Number one, do not imagine a crossless Christ. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, let's begin by looking to where we've already been. Earlier in this chapter, if you can recall, Jesus had rebuked the religious leaders of his day because they had foolishly missed the great reality of who he is. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus says to those leaders that you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And then he says in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You cannot, you are not able to interpret what's going on here because you're blind. And the only sign that you're going to get from me, Jesus says, is the sign of Jonah in that I too, Jesus says, am going to go down and I'm going to be away for three days, three nights, and then I'm going to come back just like the prophet. You're going to get that sign. You're going to see a dead and then resurrected Lord, but that's the only sign you're going to get. Well, Jesus then told his disciples in verse 6, to beware of these false men. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus wanted his disciples to be leery of the teaching of these men who had so missed the grand realization of the scriptures that the Messiah, the Deliverer, had finally come. Stay clear of them. They've missed the whole point. Watch out. That's what Jesus said. And then finally, in verse 15, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered with his incredible God-given confession in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is upon this truth about himself proclaimed by the faithful, like Peter, that Christ would build his impregnable church. But now, after all of this, and after 16 chapters of astonishing teachings and miracles, Jesus begins to reveal the path ahead as he begins to tell his disciples what they should expect, not only for their Jesus, but also for themselves. So in verse 21, our Lord makes a shocking statement as he relates the necessity of his cross and his resurrection. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must, he says. Divine necessity was laid upon the King Jesus. There was but one path of obedience for him toward his Father, one path of love towards the Father's people, one direction, one future, one goal, and it was a necessity for him to take this path if God's will would be fulfilled. And out of obedience to his heavenly father, Jesus would follow this hard road just as the scriptures had foretold. As Jesus said in Matthew 26 verse 24, the son of man goes as it is written of him. And as Matthew says in Matthew 26 verse 56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. God had declared that it would happen, Jesus had come, and now it will happen. He would go forward in willing submission to his Father's will to be the Redeemer or the freer of God's people. And Jesus' redeeming path would involve four verbs in verse 21. Look there. It says he would go to Jerusalem... And while there, he would suffer many things from the religious leaders. And then he would be killed. And then he would be raised. He would go willingly to the place of his own execution like a lamb that is being led to slaughter. And while he's there, things would begin to happen to him, as we're going to see. He would suffer verbal and physical abuse by the teachers of his day. He would be killed by men by being nailed to a tree. And then he would be raised by God himself in matchless glory. Why? Why? Why was the cross a most unimaginably terrible form of death awaiting him there in Jerusalem? Why did he need to go? Why did he need to suffer? Why did he need to be killed and then raised? 
Well, if you look back with me to the beginning of our journey through this gospel, an angel of the Lord appeared to a man named Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of our Lord, and he said some insightful words to Joseph. Flip back with me, if you would, holding your hand here to chapter 1, Matthew 1, and look with me at verse 21, where we all saw it begin. The angel said to Joseph in verse 21 that she, referring to Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. First of all, he will save his people. The elect people whom he has ordained before the foundation of the world, the ones whom he has envisioned before he ever created a thing, the ones whom he has loved and dedicated himself to come and purchase with his own blood, he would save his people. And he would save them from their sins. His people, my friends, are rebels. Whether Jews or Gentiles, his people have gone astray from their God. Jesus would come for his people to be the savior of his people, paying for the sins of his people. Grasp this, my friends. A Messiah who would save his people from their sins must himself endure the penalty for the sins of his people. Romans 5.8 God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, rebels against the holy God, Christ died for us in our place. Peter, having wised up through the grace of God, writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, which is another way of saying redeemed or freed, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter would eventually understand, though he doesn't hear, that God had sent his son to be the redeemer of his people, and he would buy them, he would free them, he would purchase them, not by silver, not by gold, but by the shedding of his own blood. He would pay the price, he would make the sacrifice, he would make the exchange, paying for the sins of his beloved ones. But Peter, in our passage, having not wised up, rejects him, insisting upon a crossless Christ. In verse 22, Peter takes Jesus off to the side, and he actually rebukes him. And this word rebuke in verse 22 is quite strong in the original Greek. Peter is essentially telling him what's what with an unchecked boldness. Disregarding the fact that he himself had just declared Jesus to be the son of the living God, Peter now brashly scolds Jesus for making such a statement about his suffering and his death. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You see, Peter had no category in his thinking for a suffering Messiah, for a Christ on a cross. He had visions of greatness and glory, of zeal and victory, whereby God's people would reign over this world with their Messiah, but he had no comprehension of what such a glory would cost. Nor did he grasp the greatest need of God's people, or especially that of himself. In Peter's mind, I think he's thinking, how could the Christ, the Son of the living God, suffer and be killed? That's so inconsistent with all that I've ever known. Certainly, Jesus must be mistaken. 
And with foolish brashness, Peter rebukes his Lord. And Jesus rebukes him right back. Up in verse 17, Jesus told Peter that he was blessed because the Father in heaven had revealed his glorious truth to Peter. In verse 18, Jesus told Peter that upon his confession of truth, the church would be built. And in verse 19, Jesus actually told Peter, get this, that he would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But now, four verses later, Jesus turns to Peter and he calls him Satan. Ponder this for a moment. Consider how far Peter's words have fallen. He went from the pinnacle of heavenly blessing and responsibility to the basement of being equated with God's enemy. And this is all because Peter failed to rightly grasp the necessity and value of the cross. Now Satan had tempted Jesus already when he went out into the wilderness back in chapter 4. And here we learn, it seems, that Jesus faced the ongoing temptations of the evil one, even as he influenced Christ's very own disciple. Peter, Jesus says, was setting his mind on the things of man. He was thinking only human, self-righteous, prideful thoughts, which failed to grasp his great sin problem. And he was not setting his mind in the things of God, the things whereby a merciful God redeems his sinful people. So, according to Jesus, Peter's way of thinking was akin to the mind of the devil because he too sought a different path for the Messiah. But Christ told him in verse 23 that you are a hindrance to me. Now, this word hindrance carries the idea of enticing somebody to sin. It is to tempt somebody towards evil. In fact, this word is often translated in the New Testament as stumbling block, as a stone or a rock that is put in someone's way, which causes that person to be tripped up. So, so here, Peter, whose name means rock, and who has just been told in verse 18 that upon this rock I will build my church, he has now become a rock of stumbling for Jesus himself. Peter, in his prideful ignorance, was doing the work of the devil to trip Jesus up by inciting him to take a different path than the Father had laid out for him. And all of this was because his vision of the Christ was a crossless vision. And my friends, if you scan... American Christianity over the last 100 to 150 years, you will see a great attempt by many in the quote-unquote church who have tried to explain a Christ absent the cross, to explain a Christ as a good teacher, as a valuable man, as a helpful, as a helpful giver of God, God's word, but not as one who would ever be able to suffer on behalf of God's people. All of this Jesus says to Peter, because he had a vision of Christ that was crossless. Well, my friends, if Christ has any saving value for us, he must be the Christ of the cross. It will be a bloody vision. It will be one of pain. It will be one of suffering. It will be one of sacrifice. If Christ has any saving value for us, he must be the Christ of the cross. Because the Christ, excuse me, the cross is fundamental to our salvation. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The righteous one did something for the unrighteous. The unrighteous are away from God. They are separated from God because a holy God cannot be connected with sinful people. And yet, the righteous God came for unrighteous individuals and he was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit so that we might be brought to God. 
He brings reconciliation to his people who are so unrighteous and so undeserving. And the means whereby he does this is by his death in the flesh. The cross. What's more, if we undermine the cross, if we negate its necessity or its importance to us, then we too find ourselves in league with Satan. If you undermine the cross, if you have a view or you promote a view of Jesus Christ that makes little of the cross, that undermines the sacrifice, you have missed Christ. You're promoting a different Lord, a different Savior. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And oh, Christendom is filled with those who want to talk about Jesus for the good things that they like and bring down the things of Jesus like the cross that are hard and they don't want to talk about. Because when one comes to the cross, you have to admit your failings. You have to admit your sin. You have to admit that you are broken. You have to admit that you are utterly needy before a holy God whom you are separated from. And that the only way you can ever be reconciled to this God is through his son who laid down his life. That is a hard thing for a sinner to admit. And of course, it only comes by grace. Therefore, we must look to the suffering Christ for our salvation. Oh, my friends, it is our constant plea, it is our constant prayer that the people who attend the worship services here and the people who hear from you as you go out in life would hear the message regularly that you must repent of your sin and believe in Jesus who came and shed his blood on the cross, dying, rising again three days later so that you might be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life with him, beginning now and lasting for forever. Oh, let that be the message that we proclaim. And oh, sinner, would you turn and would you trust in Jesus, the only Lord? So do not imagine a crossless Christ. Instead, embrace the Christ of the cross. Second exhortation this morning. Do not imagine a crossless life. Look with me at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here in verse 24, Jesus makes a second shocking statement, this time that his true disciples would also take up a cross. Here Jesus is not being literal, though some of his first disciples likely were killed in that horrific way. Instead, he is using his cross as a metaphor to describe the life of commitment and sacrifice and suffering that his disciples of all days would face. They would faithfully face the general pains of life for his name. They willingly would go without much in this world for his name. They would face persecution for his name. And they would surrender their rights and even their lives for his name. Like the Savior, Christ's disciples will follow the path of the cross. And in verse 24, Jesus relates who his true disciples are by the lives which mark them. He says, if anyone would come after me, which is literally to say, if anyone desires to be my follower, or anyone desires to be my disciple, then he or she must be marked by certain things. First of all, they are those who deny themselves, he says, for the sake of Jesus. Now, to deny oneself is to reject the self-centered path and the evil desires of one's life before one finds Jesus. This word deny, it is akin to renouncing or disowning oneself. It is to say in a very real and spiritual way that I am no longer what's utmost in my life. Because Jesus has now taken that place. Once I was on the throne, I no longer am. Jesus now sits there and I want him there forever. That's what that means. 
Or as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My old guy is dead. That's no longer what's important now. What's important now is I have Christ and he's in me. His resurrected life is my resurrected life. A true believer in Jesus is marked by following him through self-denial. And secondly, true disciples are those who take up their cross for the sake of Jesus. Like Jesus, they willingly embrace the path of worldly rejection, the path of physical and emotional suffering, the path of faith in the midst of persecution, and the path of temporary death. And... Jesus is not referring here, my friends, simply to a one-time act, but he's referring to an ongoing life of pilgrim walking in a cruel and opposing world. Taking up one's cross in verse 24 is connected to the idea of following, which is a daily decision, and it is an ongoing action. Listen to how the same passage is related by Luke in Luke 9.23, he adds a word that Matthew doesn't believe is as important to add. Luke says in Luke 9.23 that Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. One little word, daily, he adds to it. Luke believed it was important to add the word daily. That we take up our cross, not just once, not at one singular moment, but every day we get up, cross on the back, we go through life. That's what a Christian is. A true believer in Jesus is marked by their willingness to sacrifice and suffer for Jesus throughout their lives until they see Jesus. And third, true disciples are those who follow him meaning that they have made a life commitment to obey and be led by King Jesus through the strength which he alone supplies. Because you know, at the very end of this book, after he's gone to the cross, after he's been raised, he's going to bring his disciples to himself and he's going to tell them something very important. In fact, he's going to command them. He's going to say to them, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's going to command them to go, command them to make disciples, command them to teach and cause people to obey him, and through it all, he promises he will be with them. A true believer in Jesus is marked by their willingness to obediently follow Jesus. I appreciate how David Platt, Pastor David Platt, relates this. He says, this is what it means to follow Jesus and be part of his church. You die to yourself by putting aside self-righteousness, self-indulgence, and everything that belongs to you, your desires, your ambitions, your thoughts, your dreams, and your possessions, end quote. So, as you're probably guessing, let me affirm, you are correct. This path of discipleship is not an easy one. In fact, I warn you, my friends, whether you claim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, or whether you have not yet claimed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that this path will be hard. Suffering will come. You will be persecuted, and you will feel the weight of the cross if you are true, my friends. This is reality. There is warning here. To follow Jesus means toil and labor and pain in this life because we have just made ourselves, when we choose to follow him, enemies to the world that we see every single day when we walk outside of our doors. So you are correct, my friends, that this will be hard. And you must know the warning 
when the appeal for you to put your trust in Jesus Christ is given to you, yes, you must see what he has done, but you must also see the warning that this life will not be an easy one. Oh, for so many years we've been plagued by the false doctrine of easy believism, that if one prays a prayer, you're good to go and can live life without much trouble in this world. But that's so fundamentally contradictory to the New Testament. For when one becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, they, like Paul and Barnabas and Titus and Timothy, will go and proclaim Jesus Christ, and they will endure from this world the onslaughts of our enemy. However, though this path is hard, let me also say, my friends, it is a blessed one. Because though the body may feel the weight and the pain, though the emotions may well up in sorrow in this world, there is a relationship that the Christian has with his God who redeems him that far, far exceeds all the agonies of this life. That we have a relationship with our Lord that can't be broken. One that as we live these, these small decades on this earth is enjoyed and one that will be realized throughout all of eternity. Oh, it is a blessed path, though it is a hard path. So understand, my friends, the glorious upside here, that this cross life actually leads to a profitable, everlasting life. Now let me say that verses 25 through 27 are verses which relate the mark of true saving faith. We know and are convinced that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But true faith in Christ, we know and we are convinced, is never alone. In fact, when a sinner believes in Christ, God changes everything in that redeemed sinner's life. Because as they look to Jesus, they end up exchanging one path for another holy path in its place. In their repentance, they turn from the life of sin and self-focus to one of holiness and Godward focus, filled with joy, though it is marked by sorrows along the way, and they are forever changed. So verses 25 through 27 are the marks of saving faith. Jesus does this often. And in verses 25 and 26, Jesus uses the words life and soul. In the ESV version, verse 25 uses the word life, and verse 26 uses the word soul. But both words are actually the same word in the original Greek, which in this context essentially refers to the seat or the center of the inner human life. It's akin to the idea of, of the heart, the, the, the eternal part of us. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson describes it as the inner man which is destined for either salvation or damnation. Well, in verse 25, Jesus speaks of two kinds of people. First, he speaks of those who seek to save their lives, which I think means that they seek to hang on to their current sinful lives, which are so separated from God. They see their inner lives, they see the condition of their hearts, and they love their sin, and they do not want their creator to be over them, so they hang on to their broken lives. And then secondly, Jesus speaks of those who lose their lives for his sake. And I think he means those who willingly surrender themselves out of honor and obedience to Jesus, their God and King. They see their inner lives. They see their broken condition. And they agree with God against themselves. And they let go of their broken lives for Jesus. Well, Jesus says that those who save their lives in this, lay, in this way they will lose it. And those who lose their lives in this way, they will find it. This is damnation and salvation. The former chooses to hang on to a life of sin and ends up losing life. 
The latter, by God's grace, chooses to let go of a life of sin and ends up finding life. And in verse 26, Jesus grounds verse 25 with a proper motivation. He begins with the word for, so it connects right into what he's been saying. And it grounds verse 25 with a proper motivation. If a man or a woman gains everything, even the whole world, but that man or that woman loses his or her soul, loses his or her life, what profit does he or she really have? That's Jesus' argument. Because at the end of his days, at the end of her days, when his life is over and all her days have been marked by vanity, then all of their eternity will be spent paying the consequence. And this, Jesus says, is not profitable. Jesus then says, what shall a man give in return for his soul? Essentially, he asks, what is more valuable than one's soul, which will either experience salvation or damnation? What's more valuable than your life? And the answer is, nothing is more valuable. A man or a woman finds their highest profit when their soul, when their life is found in God. Because when they're in God, they're secure. When they're in God, they have a relationship of blessedness. When they're in God, they have life that does not end. When they're in God, when they're in God, they fulfill the purpose they were intended to fulfill. And then furthermore, in verse 27, Jesus now grounds both 25 and verse 26 in a reality which even now is still to come. He grounds it there in a certain hope. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man which is a title Jesus often uses for himself. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. After the cross is finished, and after the grave is mastered and Jesus is raised triumphant, and after Jesus has returned to his Father in glory and his wonderful ascension, and after his Spirit is sent to call a church to himself in faith, Jesus will come again to his world in the glory of his Father. And when he comes, he will repay his cross-carrying people. He will reward them for their true trust and for their faithful sacrifice. Now, as I have said, I am not sufficient or smart enough or learned enough to fully comprehend or relate all that the scriptures say about this topic of reward. But I will go to my general fallback, which is this. If God is giving out any kind of reward to his people, that reward, by his nature, will be worth it. God doesn't give inferior gifts. He will reward them for their true trust and for their faithful sacrifice which ultimately is the eternal life of relationship with him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul, in those three verses, Romans 2, 6 through 8, essentially says what Jesus says here in Matthew 16, only with a little bit more expansion. 
those who seek to do good in faith, to honor their God, who seek after that life and that honor and the immortality with God that comes with it, they will have eternal life. But those who seek to save their lives in this world, who seek to disobey the truth and honor unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury for them. So this is fundamental. One life to live. Two roads to take. This is the question today. And verse 28, oh, verse 28, is challenging. And I think verse 28 means that Christ's disciples will experience some of this blessing even now while we await his coming kingdom. Verse 28 says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus is talking to his disciples here. As verse 21 says, he's showing his disciples what must happen. And to those standing there, he says that there are some standing here who are not going to taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, this is what I know. Jesus has not come to earth yet a second time because I haven't seen him and he's not here with me. I take God's word seriously. He hasn't come a second time. But these guys are all dead. So what does Jesus mean by that? Well, in Matthew's gospel, as we've seen, he uses this phrasing of the coming of the Son of Man or the coming of the Savior, the coming of the kingdom in different ways, in fact, numerous different ways, to refer to different ways that Jesus comes, sometimes in judgment like with the Jews in A.D. 70, sometimes with his full coming at the end of the days, and sometimes with reference to when his spirit would come and ignite his church for ministry. Well, some consider verse 28 to be a reference to the transfiguration, which is going to happen in the very next chapter. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 17, Jesus is going to take three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. He's going to take them up on a high mountain, and it says he's going to be transfigured before them. Moses is going to be there. Elijah is going to be there. Whoa, it's going to be a mystery that we're going to see next week. But Jesus is transfigured. He reveals some part of his glory, which they've never seen before, to those three disciples. Well, some think that verse 28 is a reference to the fact that some of those disciples are going to see Christ in his transfigured glory. But I'm not sure that's correct. Because first of all, Christ's phrasing that some will not taste death, it appears to me that seems like a pretty strange way to refer to Peter, James, and John who would alone get to witness Jesus at the transfiguration just a few days later. He's talking about death, and then just six days later, chapter 17, verse 1 says, they get to go and see Jesus in his glory. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. In my mind, another explanation is compelled here. Secondly, I'm not sure that's the way because I'm not sure how the transfiguration of chapter 17 even matches up to the coming of Jesus in his kingdom that he mentions here in verse 28. So I'm just, I'm just not sure that everything aligns for that argument. But a better answer, I think, a simpler answer, I think, is to see verse 28 as having a general reference to Christ's kingly reign which would spiritually commence following his resurrection. At that time, after his resurrection, the Spirit of Christ would come upon his disciples and they would go about the task of building up his church, which is the representation of his kingdom on the earth. I think Jesus here is talking about the fact that some of them, they're not going to die before they see the glory of Jesus come, the Spirit of Jesus come on the day of Pentecost, throughout the book of Acts in the New Testament, and see God begin to work through them to call a people unto himself. I think that's what he's talking about here. And I think verse 28 says that some will not taste death rather than all will not taste death because one man in that audience in particular would actually face death before the spiritual power of Christ's kingdom arrived, namely Judas, who would betray the Lord. And if this interpretation is correct, then I think it means 
that Christ's true disciples will experience some of his kingdom blessing even now while we await his coming. Oh, we long for the day when we're going to be with him. And all the suffering, all the cross is behind. But in the meantime, as we endure the cross, there will be, there will be the experience of his kingdom working through us even as we endure. So here's our application to this, I think. I think that there is a helpful way to think about a life of cross-carrying, a helpful way to connect it right to our lives in a way that takes the metaphor and allows us to put it into our language and our minds in a way that can shape us. A cross-carrying life is marked by a come-what-may approach to God in this life. What I mean by that is, come what may, I will fill in the blank. I will deny myself. I will endure some agony. I will obey some hard command. I will fill in whatever that blank is, come what may. I will fill in the blank regardless of what happens to me now. So here's what the cross life looks like, I think, if we apply this in God's gracious strength. My money is now God's, come what may. What I have is his. I'm going to use it as he has designed even if it hurts, come what may. My time is now God's, come what may. My days, my hours, the moments of my life that I spend are no longer mine, they are God's, come what may. My giftings and my energies are now the Lord's, come what may. Anything I've received from God, any ability, ability or any ability to have exertion is now God's. All of it belongs to him, come what may. My sexuality and my sex life are under God's authority, come what may may. In a culture where this is the opposite of what is expected of us, we insist that my sexuality and my sex life are under God's authority, come what may. My station in life, whether it be a high station or a low station, will be lived for Jesus, come what may. If my station allows me to have great experiences of blessedness and comforts and ease of life, come what may. If my station means that I endure great things and have very little, come what may. For whatever station I have, it will be Jesus's. My teenage adolescence, my midlife busyness, and my twilight years are all God's, come what may. My friends might not like it. Culture might push me elsewhere. My friends in my latter years might tell me it's time to live it up. No, it is God's, come what may. Christ will reign over my politics, come what may. It may look different than everyone around me who looks like me and grew up in the place like me, but I have a superior Lord and Master, a superior King who drives my view of the culture and the world, and no matter what, I will make him master of my political understanding, come what may. The circumstances around me, whether they be good or bad, they belong to God and are given from God, so come what may. 
I will forgive others with radical selflessness. It's hard. I don't always want to. I don't always know how to, but I will do it, come what may, because Jesus has forgiven me much. The word of Christ found in the Bible will be my source of life authority, come what may. The gospel will be the message that I boldly share with other people, come what may. Other people will receive my hearty and ongoing investment in the church and out of the church, come what may. All by grace, all by his endowment of energy, endowment of energy and power, all by his ability to transform me from one who doesn't like to live like this into one who's willing to yield and say, yes, Lord, this too you shall have. This too, this cross also I will pick up and carry. One day after another, being willing to say to one thing after another, come what may. My friends, come what may Christianity is in fact the only true Christianity. There is no Christianity that is absent the cross. There is no Christianity that does not include denial, that does not include sacrifice, that does not include suffering, that does not include persecution. We must not think otherwise. We may have had it comfortable, but if we live boldly for Jesus, we will face the cross of Jesus. Come what may. And then we also know what not just may come, but what certainly will come. That at the end of it all, as verse 27 says, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Every person who has lived the cross life will be repaid by the Savior of the cross. It will come because he will come. So will you take up your cross and follow King Jesus? Will you turn from your sin, embrace him in faith, knowing you can do nothing to earn your salvation, but only believe in Jesus, and then will you see him transform you into a person who will willingly take up a cross and follow the Savior who paid for Lord, let us be people who are marked by the cross, embracing the Savior who died there, Lord, and taking up a similar life on our backs as we go through this world, looking forward to the day when we will lay it all down, receive the crown, and lay that down before the feet of the Savior who purchased us. Lord, may you be exalted in your people. May you, Lord, save any here who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you call us, Lord, who are battling sin to turn from it, Lord, to confess it, to seek out help if needed, Lord, and to live a life that is honoring to you. I pray, Lord, that we would be marked by sacrifice, loving sacrifice towards you and towards other people, that the name of your son Jesus might be praised. And we pray this in his precious name.